I was talking to a friend uh, recently about this, and one of the things I said to her was that the difference, say, between the United States during the four years of Trump, where he stress-tested the, the, the bureaucracy and trying to push the limit to see how much you know he could get away with that, there were a lot of pushback in the mm-hmm. bureaucracy because the people who are actually like career professionals, right? They, they kind of push back, ignored or, you know, uh, certain mm-hmm. orders that came down. And I, and I said to her that the thing is, I'm not even sure, uh, uh, you know, probably the, the issue in Haiti is you have corruption here. The difference is the bureaucracy holds here, right? It's been around, it, it had time to kind of, you know, solidify and entrench itself. So I asked, I, asked, I don't know whether Haiti has these institutions in place. Are the bureaucracies there? Mm-hmm. And are they so corrupt as well? What Faton calls the machine infernal. Are they mm-hmm. part of that? Or Because I want to I wanna go in the side of it's not a failed state if I know these bureaucracies is there, as weakened as they might be. Mm-hmm. But are those institutions in place, but it's just a matter of they don't have the resources for them to hold a line, as it were. Do, do you see where I'm going with that? I, I'm, I'm yeah. Not, yeah, absolutely. It's a great uh, uh, thought and, que- and question. I mean, I think I, I agree with what you're suggesting, too, especially in comparison to the United States or other places, that the institutions are, I, I think they're weak, and I think they're also fairly young in the sense of you know, removing them from the form they had under the Duvalier dictatorship, where they, where all of the various forms of government, all the way down to um, sort of the village heads or section chiefs, and and had really been touched by Duvalier and his system. And, and you know, Michel Rofrio very famously refers to Duvaliarism as a kind of totalitarianism, as not just authoritarianism or a dictatorship, but really a totalitarian one. Um, Fatan and others disagree with him, and there's a really interesting disagreement about how far Duvalier was able to go. But he certainly tried to kind of transform all the local forms of of government from the village and municipal levels all the way up to the to the state. And so after '86, there's been an attempt to reform those in a lot of ways. And so they're they're weak. They're they're not fully funded. Um, they are kind of young, and so you don't have that that time depth that the United States might have in its institutions. I think that's a huge part of it. But I think that Haiti is also really similar to some of its Caribbean neighbors, too, where there's just also a sense that the part of why various people want to control the state apparatus and the presidency in particular is they get to appoint a lot of that civil service and the that's going to make up those institutions. Mm-hmm. We see this in in Jamaica as well, very famously since the period of independence, where it's sort of a two party system. And whenever one party kind of wins in the elections and, and kicks the other one out, everyone's the, the joke in Jamaica is that all the civil servants start packing up their desks because they know they're all going to lose their jobs, and the party's going to fill them with all of their kind of uh, their supporters. And so mm-hmm. everyone is is really aligned with whatever party's in power. I don't know that it's working quite the same way in Haiti, in part because there's like a million political parties, always new ones each election, and so there's not really that sort of uh, um, basis of party politics in quite mm-hmm, the same way. Mm-hmm. Although we now have the uh, a couple of, of parties that have really taken over in Haiti. And then I think that um, the, the salaries are also a, an issue. So just financially, the state can't quite keep the civil service functioning most of the time. And so that kind of commitment to 
defending the institutions might not even be there for the people who make it up because they might have to actually have another job or mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. you know, like you think about teachers rarely getting paid or other kinds of people not getting paid and so it's a lot of things but i do think that is one of the things that that needs to be strengthened and, and built as part of the broader kind of political solution that a lot of people are calling for in haiti is really trying not only to focus only on the state but a much more expanded sense of the state to include what what political scientists would call civil society all the kinds of other institutions and i think that we've seen some tensions of it in the past few years especially around the issues around corruption where the um the judiciary section is producing all these audits and reports and i think that's part of the current political crisis is to try to suppress that uh, because a lot of people have been implicated in that uh, and it's been very profitable for them to control the executive branches of government. I think you've seen some um, sort of pushback at the level of of a couple of other institutions uh, um, around issues around uh, fuel imports and the central bank. And so there's little pockets of, of, of things. And I think that it's interesting to see that as, as difficult politically as the situation is in Haiti right now, and especially for the past five years or so, there has really been... Um, no one's been fully able to to win in what they've been trying to do if, if people have been trying to take over the state or take over the government. And I think that trying to figure out why and trying to think about how there's different kinds of tensions built into the system is an important question. And then the bigger question is how can those tensions be put to democratic use to kind of keep the, the government functioning rather than mm -hmm. just kind of moments of resistance against mm -hmm. authoritarian takeover? How can they become broader? Manuel told you that there is no more Haiti or Haiti is dead. You found quite a few Haitians who felt that way about the country. You also found those sentiments to be intersectional in the sense that they had gendered generational and geographical dimensions to them. Can you flesh those, flesh those out for us, please? Yeah, this is a really important question. And, and I certainly hope that it's clear in the book. Um, maybe I could have done more to make it clear that, that it is a really specific set of people who share that sentiment. I think it is, you know, widely shared. It's not just a dozen people. It was, it was pretty widely shared, but very specifically located um, socially and politically, um, as you're as you're noting in your question, um, and that it, so for me, it's not a general statement. It's not even one that I feel, um, but it's one that I think it's important to to acknowledge, and that I wanted to understand what what was behind that sentiment. In the simplest terms, um, and we can qualify this a little bit more, but um, I think that it's it's largely an idea shared by by men rather than women by men who are located in Port-au-Prince, but maybe not born there. Manuel was born in Port-au-Prince, but most of the people, most actively in his sort of social circle that he was connecting with, the people that I describe in chapter two who are looking for life, um, many of them had migrated to Port-au-Prince from the countryside, usually from, from the south. 
and they had come in the 70s and in 80s so that kind of gives you a sense of their age they had come probably um as they usually narrate it you know maybe in their in their teens uh maybe for education but largely coming to look for work and staying in Port-au-Prince and so they their their generation we could kind of put them in a uh, in a social and political and historical context they're a generation shaped by the Duvalier dictatorship and especially by Jean-Claude's um, version of that. So the so-called economic revolution of Jean-Claude in the 70s and 80s that brought a lot of people to Port-au-Prince to work in the expanding factories. That was, of course, the developmental model being kind of foisted on Haiti that the dictatorship was happy to pick up because there was development dollars coming in. It was all geared towards making Haiti the kind of Taiwan of the Caribbean to have um, cheap, flexible migrant labor in the factories um, coming to the city to work in, uh, you know, textile garment factories and those kinds of things. And as we know, uh, in retrospect, that, you know, hundreds of thousands of people moved to Port-au-Prince for maybe at its height, 40 to 60,000 factory jobs. So most of those people end up in what is you know, pretty vaguely called the informal sector, the informal economy, informal housing. And this is so they're a generation of the era of the transformation of the Haitian economy and the transformation of the space of Port-au-Prince as a city, the sort of, and, and of course, the transformation is happening in the countryside, the, the kind of economic collapse because of constraints of the peasant economy which is driving people into the city to, to look for new kinds of economic activities. And that is something very intentionally being done to the countryside through a, a, a disinvestment, blocking of investment, a pushing of peasants to become mobile wage workers in, in, in the capital or overseas um, as well. And so there's a kind of whole economic context to that generation. People like Manuel and the others that I, that I write about ended up finding that as, as sort of hard as those decades were, they really valued them. They saw themselves as urban rather than rural, and that meant something to them. So it, it's sort of like a kind of social mobility for them to move up into participate in, in the, the world of the capital. They had access to a lot of cash by participating in the informal economy around tourism, especially. They were not really working in factories. They were working informally, but that allowed them access to, to a lot of cash, especially, again, comparatively, what they would have been making if they were still um, farmers or still in the countryside, or even if they had those sort of formal jobs. And Manuel and others had become quite famous through that tourist system. Uh, and they then had access to things like some, many of them had some level of, of English because they had interacted with a lot of foreigners, tourists or journalists. Um, and so for them, that was really tied to their sense of, of individual agency, their own control over their time and their work, uh, over the labor process. And that became you know, tied to their own social values, where as wealthy people with big networks around the city, they had a lot, they, had, they accrued a lot of, of respect and social standing. And then, of course, through the 80s, a lot of things happened to destabilize that world for them. 
there's this almost overnight the collapse of the tourist economy in uh, after 84 or so as Haiti gets blamed by the U.S. and the CDC in the U.S. and, and others as sort of the locus of uh, uh, HIV infection throughout the Americas. And we now know that the story goes the other way, that HIV-AIDS was most likely brought to Haiti by foreign tourists who participated in um, the, the sort of uh, in, in sex tourism and the informal economies of prostitution around the hotels and the tourist areas. And so, um, nevertheless, Haiti sort of blamed for HIV-AIDS. Tourists stop coming en masse. That whole economy craters. The dictatorship falters. And Haiti enters into a, a kind of period of destabilization. The men that I'm writing about who um, are of this sort of economic generation, they might be different ages. Uh, so I don't want to think of the generation as being tied too much just to age, but to a kind of location in these uh, um, informal economies and in the social networks of prestige and respect that go with them. Uh, the men in that field had to kind of pivot, and they did that in a couple of ways. Politically, they were all very actively aligned with Jean-Bertrand Aristide and the popular movement. Most of them were um, voodoo practitioners and, and, uh, and so would identify as, as, um, as voodooissant rather than as, say, evangelical Christians. So there's a kind of a religious dimension to it as well. And then um, economically, they pivoted taking their sort of extensive network for tourists and, and, and now using it for journalists or development workers throughout the, the period of the 90s and 2000s. And so there's a lot of navigating and using their resources to navigate the many crises that begin to really kind of build. And I, by the time that I'm writing about them in the 2000s and Manuel is, is saying, Haiti is dead, there's no more Haiti, it's after quite a long time of living with insecurity and feeling like all the things you had built in your life are kind of gone or you can't get them back. And they're no longer helping you navigate the crisis because it's no longer just a fleeting moment to get through, but it's just sort of expanding and expanding and escalating and cascading through different parts of your life. And by the 2000s, as Aristide is sort of back in power again, elected again, and then kicked out a second time by a coup, that political generation of people very much shaped by the um, 86 uh, generation, right? That the, the moment of the end of the dictatorship and the possibility, the, the, the real sense of possibility of transforming Haitian society that drove them by 2002, but certainly by 2004, for a lot of people was starting to feel like that whole idea of hope, political hope and possibility was closed, that, um, that elections were not going to yield transformation because if you get your guy in, there's going to be a coup. Or even if Aristide stays in, he can't do the things he's promised that everyone elected him to do because of the conditions set by the international community, that the path to transforming Haitian society wasn't going to run through democratic elections and taking over the state, but also that if it didn't do that, where was it going to go? How were you going to transform Haitian society? And, you know, it's in that context that there's all kinds of projects happening. Um, you know, things like the Botanic Garden Project in Marizan that I talk about in, in the first chapter of the book. Um, lots of things that people are trying to do. And I think that by the time that I'm hearing Manuel and others say there's no more Haiti, 
they're feeling disillusioned and kind of exhausted, but also just that, that they don't have any space left to maneuver in part because at that point that they're saying that, um, we're, we saw the beginnings of what we're seeing um, in a much more expanded form in Haiti right now, the beginnings of not so clearly politically aligned gangs, but now kind of autonomous armed groups in neighborhoods like Marizan that are taking over. They have their own interests. They're fracturing. It's hard to know how to safely locate yourself politically if you say you're with Aristide or you're against Aristide. Depending on who hears you say that, you might become a target. The economy sort of continued to, to crater, at least for the informal sector and, and, and these men in it. They're losing the kind of respect and privilege and access to cash they used to have. They're getting older. They're not able to take care of their families the way they want to. By 2004, you know, things like kidnappings and robberies are becoming endemic and and their prestige would have protected them from that at an earlier moment. And it, and it wasn't anymore. And so I think that it's in that sense that you see a kind of political, economic, um, social generation of men um, who work in the informal sector and feel very deeply attached to their own sense uh, as urban residents who control their, um, who have control over their, their work and their time and their value and their agency they no longer feel that they do. And I think that they can see, I think Manuel could see that all those things he valued were, were not likely to come back. Or certainly if they came back, they, would, they wouldn't come back for him, a younger generation. You know, let's say you're, you're a driver um, and you're going to try to pivot from driving tourists around to driving journalists around. You know, by the 90s and 2000s, the, the people who had cars in the 80s still had the same cars. And but now there's younger men who have a car that's maybe air conditioned or maybe they have a cell phone or they speak better English. And so they can kind of jump the line and they don't have to defer to people who are older than them, who should have the clients first. They can become sort of the, they can pick up all kinds of clients and, and take over the whole market. So all those little kinds of competition were really pushing them out of the, the last sort of sphere or frontier they felt that they could navigate and control and actually succeed in. Um, and so all those things are happening at the, the nev level of, of the national political crisis. They feel like they're losing out. They don't have a voice and elections aren't yielding the, the promises that they had heralded. And then economically, they can't, you know, they can't find life anymore. They're feeling like they might, um, they don't know what's going to happen. Right. And so I think that the, that sentiment really comes out of that feeling for that generation of people. It's very different um, for, for women who have a, a stronger kind of sense that, that acknowledging all those things, but usually because, you know, women are, are, are socially under, see themselves as, as being responsible to the whole household and, and children. And so there's a, and then they have a whole different role in terms of the markets and access to informal economy than, than men might um, you know, people like Manuel ended up, you know, by the 2000s, they, they are largely sitting around not doing much all day. And so they can't turn their activity into forms of value or into cash. Um, and so they're losing out it's sort of a crisis of, of even a kind of idea of masculine, masculine yeah, um, agency in a way too. So for women, it's a little different for, especially for urban residents who would identify as evangelical, they would see it differently. And then of course, for the professional middle class or the elite, um, they've pushed back very strongly on that sentiment. 
And I think that's noteworthy, not only because there exists this whole other shared sentiment that a country never dies or Haiti's not going to die. You see all that very strongly in all kinds of beautiful street art after the earthquake as well. But in 2002, 2004, when I first heard Manuel say those things, their responses, the counter of A Country Never Dies, was mostly at that point being voiced by um, middle-class professionals who were pretty actively against Aristide and sort of for what ended up becoming the UN intervention in 2004 that lasted until 2017 or so. And so there was a real different kind of class divide then there as well. I don't think that that sentiment of, of Haiti is never going to die or a country never dies is, I don't think it's tied to that particular framework anymore. I think it's much more expansive and, and, and really important to acknowledge it, um, that it's becoming sort of the more dominant sentiment, um, hopefully. But I think that at the time that I was first hearing it, it had that sense that um, the the people kind of pushing back against the popular movement were the ones saying Haiti's not going to die, but the people who were most aligned with Aristide were feeling like maybe this is, uh, maybe something is ending here. That something that began in 86 might be kind of closing in 2004. I don't know how true that is, but I think that that's certainly how people were feeling about it in 2004 as it was happening. And as we see the sort of terrible damage wrought by the by Minusta, by the UN mission, and by the decade plus of, of reconstruction after the earthquake, um, we can see a whole new kind of generation reacting in different ways to, to that history and thinking about the political moment now in some different ways that I think that people were thinking about it 10, uh, 20 years ago. Yeah. You said that anthropology is like a study of the ordinary. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I like to think of it that way. And, and I don't know if every anthropologist would agree. But for me, um, anthropology is a, as a social science dwells in, lives in specificity and the particular. Or maybe even another way to put it, in really small data. If we're in an era of big data and massive computations that we can do and looking at sort of you know, global usage of an app or something like that. You can get this astronomically large data. You need big, big, powerful computers to crunch it. And we can get a vision of how the economy works or how something works through that. But anthropology is committed to very, very small numbers. And so in some ways, I think other social sciences might say that it is harder to see it as sort of producing, you know, valid results or replicable results, or it's very subjective. And that's why we, we really center the positionality of the researcher in the methodology as well so that we can acknowledge that. But I mean a couple of other things by it too. I mean, anthropologists like to say that our data isn't so much small as it is thick. Um, that it's very, rather than sort of the thinness of, of just quantitative data, qualitative data, as we call it in the social sciences, is all that stuff that's sort of full of values and contexts and complications and ambiguity and even contradictions. It's harder to make sense of it because it can be a bit messy and it unfolds in real time. And so partly I wanted to direct uh, the reader to know that that's what anthropologists are really interested in. And that's the kind of data and evidence that they're going to get in the book that is driving the argument. 
But we also do as anthropologists make more general statements and the general statements come out of the particular rather than going the other way. So we don't start with a top-down theory and then locate empirical examples that show that theory. Rather, we start with the empirical material aspects of social life, how people live day to day, what they actually do. And then we build our understanding of more general patterns and social relationships up from that. And I think that the other thing I would just note too is that in an earlier version of anthropology, historically as a discipline, there was much more focus, say, not on the ordinary, but on sort of the structures, moments of, of high, highly stylized ritual practice or um, looking at myth, that these are kind of things that societies produce about themselves that, that tell members of that society how things are. You know, the origin story in a myth or a ritual where in the course of the ritual, it tells you how to do it correctly. And it's a very stylized kind of thing. Let's say a, a, an initiation rite, for example, or something like that. Now, that is also all kinds of ordinary, too, because it's just a, a fundamental part of people's lives and their experience. But they're also sort of punctuated, very formal moments, a little different from um, the actual sort of everyday. And I think that, you know, anthropologists sometimes like to distinguish between what people say they do versus what they actually do. And everyone has that. If you ask people, um, you know, what is... What is uh, society like for you or how do you think about your own culture or even how do you think about your own job you get one kind of answer which might highlight some of the some important things no doubt um, but some of the more obvious or visible or formal things and then if you just live with them and follow them around you see that their job or their society or their culture is much more complex than that a lot of things that didn't get said maybe because um, you know, the person you asked would think, well, of course, everyone knows that. I don't need to say it. The unspoken because everyone knows it or the unspoken because everyone knows it, but don't, they don't know how to articulate it or the unspoken because it's kind of an unconscious dimension of social life that people don't even know that they're doing, um, but that drives them in a way. Or you can see all of those different elements that make up sort of the, the robustness and the texture and the thickness of everyday life. Um, beyond how we describe it in moments of sort of stepping aside, stepping back and formally describing it, right? So I think the method of anthropology is really well suited because the method is essentially sort of deep hanging out, living with people through various moments of their lives. And in some ways, um, it's almost like the anthropologist is, is a bit like a child um, in that, you know, you're asking people questions that are kind of kind of dumb on the surface because people normally adults don't ask them like, well, why do you do this? And it's like, well, because we do, because that's, you should know already that that's how we do things. Do I have to explain it? We don't, ex we only usually explain that to children because they don't get it, you know? So you can play that kind of naive outsider card as a method in some way, which is a great way to get people to think about things they don't normally pause to think about. And then they begin to articulate theories that they have about why they do it um, that maybe they haven't ever really articulated out loud to people before because everyone else also just knows it and just does it, right? And so the ordinary is really a, a way that I think is actually where the, the theory of social life emerges from. 
but usually in unspoken ways, just through the kind of embodied material way we navigate the world and we know it and think about it and know a lot of sophisticated things about how language works or social relationships work or whatever it might be. And then asking people, kind of interrupting their ordinary life. The anthropologist comes into your, into your house and says, hey, tell me about what you're doing. That becomes a moment not for me to tell them what they're doing, but for me to listen as they think out loud, you know, where I become the occasion for them to say, oh, you know what? I do know how this works, but I've never stopped to kind of say it out loud or to tell somebody about it because I never had to. And so the ordinary becomes, um, you know, not only this sort of most important space in which we sort of live social life, we mostly live ordinary everyday lives. Those sort of more formal moments are very infrequent in, our, in most people's lives. But also the ordinary is a place of, for, for theory to emerge from particular experiences, from specificity to a more general claim about how we do things and why we do things, you know, whoever we is um, in that kind of um, framing. So that I think is important methodologically, but also kind of theoretically for the ordinary to be the space from which we theorize social life, not the more formal moments, um, but the the informal, the everyday, the intimate moments where social life emerges um, and changes and, and takes shape. What's the difference between sad stories and tragic stories? I ask this because uh, this is a quote from your book. Quote, this book is a meditation on life and death, on living and dying in Haiti. You, you also said that you don't buy the, the dominant trope that, that stories about Haiti are tragic. Well, why is that? Yeah, maybe that this is a distinction that is, is less relevant for others than for me, but I'll tell you what I was thinking about it and why it was important for me, why I wanted to make that distinction. You know, the idea that, that to acknowledge that there's going to be sadness um, in the book is to acknowledge that the emotions are actually really essential to the story and to the argument. And so there's a lot of grief and loss and sadness in the stories that I tell and people are expressing those emotions. So... And then as a reader, you know, or, or a researcher, we ought to feel some sadness or some grief as well and when we hear about um, the, some of the, the, the things that, that, are, um, that happen in the book and they're described in the book. But the reason I wanted to distinguish it from a tragic one really was, and maybe I was just sort of thinking as a, as a writer, thinking about how tragedies work at the structural level as a narrative um, you know, kind of classically ancient Greek tragedies or, or Shakespeare's tragic plays, for example, um, really set some pretty formal kinds of conditions on the way that people write about things as tragedy. And I think that for me, the most notable one in, in most tragedies is that, you know, the essence of, of a tragedy, tragic story in, say, ancient Greece, uh, uh, the classic tragedies like um, Oedipus Rex. We know the story of Oedipus. Um, the, the essence of the tragedy there is that no matter what the character does, the plot will always win. And the plot is where the tragedy happens. So tra those kinds of tragedies are written for an audience in ancient Greece that wants the cathartic experience 
of of kind of going through the emotions because they can see the story in a way that characters can't see it. And so their own response as an audience is going to be, you know, largely how we might respond to a film now where you're like, you know, oh, behave differently. Don't, don't do that. Do this instead. And we, we watch the characters do something we know they shouldn't do because the characters don't know they're in a story and stuck in the story, but we as an audience do. And I, so I didn't want the ethnography to have that kind of narrative structure where as an audience or as a reader, we have some, th- some different kind of knowledge and that the people in it are just sort of acting out roles uh, until the plot is done. And so for me, it was really important to, to not do that because partly what I wanted to do was show how people were actively thinking about what was happening. And sometimes it, their thinking of it was that there's, they were powerless to stop things that were happening to them. And other times they thought that they had agency to do things. And so I wanted to be able to move between those things at the level of narrative so we could see it. So we could see if people felt powerless, that was a feeling get, and, and a theory about the overwhelming oppressive structures kind of shaping their lives, whether it's foreign military intervention or political violence or, or a, a global capitalist system that they are powerless to sort of change in some way. Um, that that's uh, their theory about structure rather than me saying that they really are powerless. It's them understanding quite well the ways in which power is unequally distributed in their own society or globally. So for me, at the level of kind of narrative form, it was important to make that distinction. But maybe that's just also not how people use it, that, that people use tragedy in a whole different kind of colloquial sense of extra sad because... Um, of other kinds of conditions. And I think that that, you know, maybe is a good way to keep that word in some sense. But I do think that Haiti is often framed by a kind of international media, certainly by kind of international forms of, of um, Christian missionization or humanitarian aid as tragic. And that framework is used to mobilize a particular emotional response in foreigners towards Haiti which I would say is, is pity, not solidarity. And I think that that was the other kind of idea behind making that distinction for me. Maybe it could have just said it better or said it like that, that, that we need to have our emotions lead us to solidarity with, with people um, who are living through terrible things and things that shouldn't have to live with or this shouldn't happen because... Um, you know, they're being done by, by bad actors or oppressive forces or structures that we should change. Um, so to, to think about solidarity as being the outcome of our emotional responses to a sad story, compassion and sympathy and listening and learning rather than pity, which so clearly turns people into a, a kind of object for us rather than a subject that we recognize. And I think that that tragic frame often leads to that idea of, of pity. And so I really wanted to write against that as well. And I think that's very prevalent in the humanitarian response after the earthquake, um, in the way that development um, a- agents go to Haiti. Um, you hear it all the time from foreigners working in Haiti that, oh, isn't it just so tragic, isn't it just, you know, that they talk about Haiti that way. And, and so in one sense it is, but again, to me, 
the underlying unspoken idea when people call something tragic is that it's sad, but it's also too bad that it was fated to happen that way. And I really wanted to get away from that idea that it was inevitable. Because I think that that is something that our, our, our sort of everyday understanding of tragedy contains still in it, even if we don't know it. You know, if you think about the story of, of Oedipus, you might be familiar from, say, the Oedipus complex in psychoanalysis or something like that. Or maybe you know the story. If you don't, it's fine too. But, you know, Oedipus gets this, um, or Oedipus's father goes to, the, to an oracle and gets this, uh, hears that his son is going to grow up to kill him um, and marry his, his wife, uh, Oedipus's mother. So, um, Oedipus's father decides, well, I don't want that to happen to me. So I'm going to take my son and bring him to the countryside and, um, stick a spike through his foot. So he stays in the ground and just leave him to die. Somebody finds Oedipus in, in the next kingdom over and takes him in and Oedipus grows up in the next kingdom and becomes, you know, a happy person who eventually gets his own prophecy, which is that he's going to kill his father and marry his mother. Now he doesn't know that he's been adopted. And he thinks, wow, I really don't want to do that. So he leaves where he is, which sets a whole chain of events into, uh, into motion where he ends up killing a stranger he meets on the road, who is actually his, his biological father. And he ends up marrying his mother. And of course, when he finds out, um, the, the, we get the cathartic release in the tragic narrative as it's presented in, in, Greek, in the Greek play, where you know, Oedipus has this realization and the characters realize something the audience has always known. And so that's really the formal level. That's the essence of, of what I think we mean by tragedy, that it's something nobody could do anything about. Even if you try to do something about it, you'll just make it worse. And I think that that is something I refuse to say as a way we should understand what's happening in Haiti, that things can absolutely be different. They could have been different in the past if people had done different things. They can be different now and they will be different in the future if we do different things. I think that the whole framing of crisis is so often used to make Haiti seem like a place that is just inevitably bound to fail. And I think that that tragic narrative, whether it's from humanitarians or, or a foreign government now, is the contemporary version of the kind of silencing and unthinkability about the revolution that we would have seen people articulating in 1804 when they refused to recognize Haiti politically. And then all through the 19th century when Haiti was constantly held up as a place that, you know, had to be contained and ignored and people wouldn't trade with it or recognize it politically. And then when it wasn't a vibrant, successful country, they'd say, aha, look, look what freedom gets you. You'll become Haiti if you don't uh, stay a colony in our empire. So the idea of, of tragedy Haiti is a very old one where Haiti is used as an example, held up as an example for... Um, you know, all kinds of other anti-colonial struggles, anti-imperialist struggles, struggles against systemic racism to say, look, do you really want to be like Haiti or do you want to accept whatever we give you? And so I really wanted to resist all of that. And maybe um, it could have been um, distinguished in a different way from, from sad stories. So, but I wanted to refuse that sort of framing while at the same time allowing the emotions that people are, are talking about and feeling that I'm feeling and that the reader's feeling to take space in the book as something that we can acknowledge that we should feel sad about this. And, and, and readers who are non-Haitian should feel sad, but also complicit in some of the things that are happening in the book. Um, because of course, it's not fated 
and you know we can vote for different policies in Canada, or the United States, or France that our governments can do. We can listen to Haitians when they say that they want a Haitian solution and a political solution to the crisis, not another intervention. So all of that doesn't need to be inevitable, but but we do need to think about our how our own emotional responses can hail us into solidarity rather than into repeating this old trope that Haiti is just sort of bound to fail. I wanted to talk to you about uh, just within the notion of political crisis, how does the, the Haitian concept of desert factor into all of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, you know, a central question that I was thinking through in the book as well. And I think that it, it takes different shape in different moments. Um, it's hard to even know what we mean by the political crisis in Haiti because it can take a lot of different forms. I mean, I think that there's, in a very simple sense, kind of a budgetary crisis for the government and a, a parliamentary crisis at various moments. But in the in the book, and the, the political crisis that I was talking about in the moment of the book was really centered around what the international community was thinking of and often labels as a failed state. And they use that to justify intervention, which is sort of being debated um, right now about Haiti as well. And in that sense, it's a little bit different than sort of the institutional or organizational sense of a crisis. A political scientist might think of a political crisis being at the level of an institution not working properly. But here, I think that um, in 2003, 2004, and after 2004, going into the UN intervention, the people I was working with talking about political crisis were really talking about the state's kind of total absence or um, its its full capture by non-democratic actors or other kinds of forces. And so Desaud, I came to understand as something that had sort of two meanings or two valences to it. One, it seemed to speak to that sense of uh, an atmosphere of uncertainty that goes with insécurité, that, that, that sense of insecurity that I think the English word insecurity is a really uh, poor translation of the Creole word insecurité, where it's so much more vast in its meaning. But it, it, it seems really tied to the way in which the, the things that are supposed to keep you secure, maybe the state or the economy or big institutions socially that should be there and keeping us secure in our lives, aren't doing that and are maybe having the opposite effect so that everything that should produce order in society is actually producing its opposite, a sense of disorder, uncertainty. And in that, again, in that time period that I was talking about, people were really unsure who everyone was with or what you could say. And so it was a little bit like being back under the dictatorship, at least as those who could remember being under the dictatorship felt because you didn't know if you were talking to an Aristide supporter or someone who supported the coup or someone who supported the gangs. And so you didn't want to sort of talk about politics a lot. So that atmosphere of uncertainty was part, I think, of the disorder, that sense of desordre. But the other thing that I thought was really crucial about how I came to understand people were using that word is that it really carries a sense of responsibility, that there's people behind the scenes. Maybe you, you have a guess of who they are, you know who they are, maybe you don't that are actively creating disorder as, uh, you know, to gain power or for ways of generating generating wealth. And that could be, 
you know, local actors at the level of uh, a neighborhood where the gangs might create disorder as part of their economy of, of terror on a neighborhood to keep control over it, or elites or, or political actors in Haiti and, of course, the international community, I think, likes to create or the conditions of disorder in Haiti so that it can justify whatever it wants to do, whether it's cordoning off Haiti and making sure, as the U.S. is about to start ramping up, to make sure that that Haitians can't get across the sea to, to seek asylum in the United States or elsewhere, or whether it means justifying intervention. And so it seemed to be a, a more pointed and a, I think a better theory of political crisis because the political science idea of state failure is sort of subjectless. It's like, oh, some states fail and, and here's the international community stepping in to save everyone. When really that there's a lot of politics that goes behind the scenes of making something look like a failure or that it's not working and justifying intervention or making something actually actively be disordered is not the absence of order, but it's a mode of social action that produces a certain kind of social condition, insecurity. And that's very generative for some people. Um, and of course, it's terrible for most people who have to live with it. So I thought that, to me, that was really the essence of the concept that I was hearing as people were using it, in, especially around 2003, 2004, and the period after the 2004 coup, where especially those first three or four years of the UN mission were really violent, especially in Port-au-Prince. And, um, you know, people were, were really just trying to navigate um, conditions of total uncertainty. And, and in many ways, people are, are right back in those kinds of moments right now over the past couple of years in Haiti mm -hmm. again. So is it, so are you saying, are you saying then that you don't believe Haiti is a failed state or are you saying the causes behind it uh, are, are, are not are, are external to the country? And there, I mean, do you believe Haiti? Because I've actually used that term a few times in moments of despair, you know, it says, yes. you know, like, so do you not believe Haiti's a failed state? I mean, or? there's definitely a crisis in, in the sort of post-1986 form of government. And I think everyone feels that way. Um, it, it's a complicated political system to have any party kind of win and have enough of a mandate that it can do something. Mm -hmm. um, but that's also the system. And I think that, that there's all kinds of dysfunction in um, American democratic institutions. We mm -hmm. don't call America a failed state in part because, you know, it's obviously still doing some of the work of governing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But uh, so I, I, my, my worry is less about whether we call it that or not, and more about the kind of intellectual genealogy of that term, which was really created by American political scientists to to justify forms of intervention. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. if we're calling Haiti a failed state in order to, to justify military intervention, I wouldn't want to call it that. But obviously everyone that I know, most people I work with live in, in Marizan or other neighborhoods, they certainly feel like the state is absent or completely failed at its responsibility to its citizens. So I think that it makes sense to talk about it as, um, as failed. I guess part of the question too is, is it, is it not working or is it, it working the way somebody wants it to work? And mm -hmm. I think that's part of what that sense of there's people behind the scenes actively making disorder is, is gesturing to. 
mm-hmm. I think a lot of the failures of the state do come from from extranational actors or the structural conditions that the the Haitian any Haitian government would find itself in, where its national budget is completely dependent on the International Monetary Fund and other international financial institutions. They set some basic conditions for that money. So there's an immediate tension between, say, you know, somebody elected or a government elected with a broad popular mandate to do X, Y, and Z policy, and then its complete inability to do those policies because of conditions that come from financial institutions that are not, you know, elected or democratic. And so there's a real tension in whether the, the conditions that any Haitian government meets because of the sort of dependency it has on international um, financial institutions mm-hmm. could allow it to function. Mm-hmm. I think that is one of the important sort of frameworks. And then I think the other thing is that there's a lot of political tensions in Haiti and a lot of political actors who want power but can't get it by democratic means. They can't, they're mm-hmm. not popular enough to get elected or their whole party can't get elected enough. And so they need to find mechanisms to take control of the state because the government and the state apparatus is still predominantly the most important institution to, to hold if you want to have power or the ability to generate certain kinds of, of wealth in the country. And so there's an internal kind of tension of, of, of what's going to happen at the level of the government. And then there's some external conditions. I think that if you look broadly at the, the democratic era from Aristide's first election to um, to Moise's government, uh, you know, the there's been very few of those of those governments that have finished a full term with a full kind of constitutional arrangement of the government without, say, disbanding parliament, for example. And so there's a continual crisis in the organizational form of the government, to be sure, that has to do with party politics and all kinds of internal things. But I think the broader conditions that we point to the state not being able to actually fulfill its obligations to people, if that's what we mean by state failure, you know, one gloss for state failure in political science is that the state can no longer provide public goods, in particular security. So we're seeing that right now, that the state and the national police cannot provide security in the country. Uh, the question is, you know, why and what's going on and, and how to find a solution to that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in that sense, it's definitely an apt term. My worry with the term is that it, if it is the answer, if we stop there, we don't get too far, but if it's the start of a question, you know, what are the conditions that keep producing the political crises in Haiti and what could we do to get rid of those conditions? I think that is the the next step we need to go to beyond just thinking of, of calling it state failure or is mm-hmm. sometimes called weak state as well. We have to go a little bit beyond that and say, what are the underlying conditions that keep producing governments that keep having that particular quality or that form or that limitation? For me, this goes back to some of those structural conditions, too, where the the whole international paradigm for states like Haiti since the 80s has been to reduce the role of the state to minimal functions, the kind of um, structural adjustment programs that come from the IMF and other organizations, the United States idea of what used to be called the Washington Consensus is that after dictatorship, Haiti should become a kind of neoliberal state where the government should do very little. All the national, um, nationally owned enterprises should be privatized. 
so that they can, you know, run more efficiently or to root out corruption and all. There's lots of arguments to be made about why that should happen. But one of the things that did happen, say, from dualism to, to after 86, the state had been historically in Haiti the largest employer. And it now isn't. Um, and I think that, that so part of it is that, that there's a weakening at the level of sort of a critical mass of the, the institutional apparatus of the government or civil society or a professional middle class that has stable public jobs, public sector jobs. I think Haiti needs a much more robust government in that sense, because I think that it's those institutions where you have professionals who have a kind of vocational calling to their own profession, and then they're doing a job for the government, that are, that's where you're going to get that sense of, no, it's, it's more important for me not to give in to corruption or any particular political leader, but to defend the state as something, as a, to defend the public interest. I think that that has been withered away by the sort of template that's been foisted onto the Haitian state to reduce its role mm -hmm. to basically just security, which now we see they can't even do, of course. Um, if I remember right, the Washington Consensus, they're a group of libertarian-leaning right-wing conservatives mm -hmm. and funded by them, right? If I Absolutely. Remember, yeah, okay. Yeah. And so, yeah. they, you know, they, they're kind of free market uh, extremists in a sense, right? If, if mm -hmm. that the state is always an obstacle to the market and so it should step out of the way. The market can govern more efficiently than the state. Mm -hmm. Which you know it can't necessarily do if you're if you're Haiti where you're already inserted in a highly unequal way into a global market, mm -hmm. um, given the sort of long legacy of of neo-colonial economic forms of dependency and debt, it's it's not going to work very well. Got any final thoughts for us uh, to close this up? I mean, just to to thank you for having me. It's always a, a real pleasure. I, I'm a big fan of the podcast and, and just honored to be um, on it and have the chance to talk to you, and, and thank you for reading the book. Uh, no problem. I really enjoyed it. And also, too, now you've expanded my, my, my definition of the word dessert, because I only used to use it against my six-year-old boy, you know, <laughs> because he's pure chaos, you know? Right, yeah. <laughs> so, dessert. That's what you call it. Yeah. So, yeah. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. All right. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Negmawa Podcast. That's Mawa with a W, not an R.